0: Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. The BP Deepwater Horizon oil rig plunged into the Gulf of Mexico on April 22nd, the 40th anniversary of Earth Day. Something else happened that day that you probably haven't heard about. The U.S. Navy tested a Green Hornet fa 18 fighter powered by fuel made from Camelina, a hardy U.S.-grown plant that can thrive even in difficult soil. Navy Secretary Ray Mavis called the test a milestone in the development of biofuels. Secretary Mabus is here today to discuss the costs and dangers of fossil fuels and the promise of cleaner and more secure energy supplies. Ray Mabus served as a surface warfare officer in the U.S. Navy from 1970 to to 72, and then pursued a career in government in Washington, D.C., and his home state of Mississippi. In 1988, he was elected governor of Mississippi, and in 1994, President Clinton appointed him as an ambassador to Saudi Arabia. In 2009, he became Secretary of the U.S. Navy, and this summer, President Obama asked him to develop a long-term plan for the restoration of the Gulf of Mexico. Please welcome Secretary Mabus to Climate One. Thank
1: you so much for that introduction, and thank you all for being here tonight. I... um, I want to talk about energy and I want to talk about the Navy's role in it, but I'd like to start out by doing something I call Navy 101, Navy and Marine Corps um, basics about what we are and where we do, what we do uh, today in the Navy. We have 290 ships in our battle fleet. Over 60% of them are at sea tonight. Over 50% are forward deployed. We have 3,700 aircraft. We own 3.3 3 million acres of land and have 72,500 buildings. And most importantly, we have 900,000 sailors, marines, and civilians working in the Department of the Navy. We're doing all sorts of things around the world. Today we have 20,000 Marines in Afghanistan, mainly in the Helmut River Valley in southern Afghanistan. We also have 14,000 sailors on shore in the Middle East, more than we have at sea. We fly more than 30% of all combat air missions over Afghanistan. At the same time, The helicopters from the USS Peleliu, a large deck amphibious ship, have been delivering aid into Pakistan, into the flooded northern parts of Pakistan. We also have the hospital ship Mercy doing Pacific partnership through the islands of the Southern Pacific, doing medical mission work there. We have ships in the Africa Partnership Station, circumnavigating Africa, providing training for local navies and Coast Guard, doing medical, dental, veterinary work, and also engaging with the leadership of those countries. We have a task force off the Horn of Africa combating piracy. We have submarines at sea providing deterrence. There is, sometimes, a question as to why, in today's world of satellites and instant communication, why we need a Navy, a fleet. And the answer that I have is that today we need a fleet and a global fleet more than ever. Ninety percent of all commerce, travels by way of water and in this day of instant telecommunications 95% of all telecommunications travels under the sea for one of the few times in history a country has used its dominance of the sea to ensure free passage and free navigation for all countries and not just for itself we can respond to almost any kind of situation, whether it is high-end conventional warfare, irregular warfare with requiring special forces, hybrid warfare like you're seeing in so many parts of the world today, but we can also do disaster relief and humanitarian assistance. We can do it without taking up one inch of soil of anybody else's country. We come from the sea. A good example of that was the earthquake in Haiti. Within a week, we had 19 ships and over 12,000 people in Haiti. But perhaps as important, the Marines, when they got there on their amphibious craft, The airport was very damaged, and only limited numbers of flights were coming in. The port was completely shut down. So the Marines did did what Marines always do. They found a beach, and they went ashore, and they began giving aid and rebuilding. At the same time, that work was proceeding on the airport and the port to allow larger and heavier organizations to get in. We need a global fleet to reassure allies, to deter potential competitors. And we have one today. In the 290 ships that we have, we cover every ocean on Earth. And we are looking toward the future, and, which is part of the climate change Discussion that is going on. We have a task force called Climate, Task Force Climate Change, because if there is an ice-free Arctic during the summer within the next 25 years, which most people believe that is highly probable, it has big implications for the Navy and for our patrolling duties. If there's a rise in sea level when 70% of the world's population lives within a hundred miles of the coast, the potential for disruption, particularly in some less developed countries, becomes pretty profound and will almost certainly involve naval assets. So we have a big interest in that. Which brings me to the main thing I wanted to talk about, which is energy. America and the Navy rely too much on fossil fuels. From a military standpoint, there are lots of reasons to try to get off of this dependence on fossil fuels. One is strategic. We would not allow countries on Earth to build our ships or our aircraft but yet we are willing to give them a say on whether those ships or aircraft operate because we buy the fuel from them. Our fuel comes from potentially volatile places on Earth. It's it's susceptible to price shocks. It is susceptible to supply interruptions. And it makes our military, and in this case Navy and Marine Corps, far too vulnerable to some sort of disruption. Our dependence has a tactical aspect, too. Think of getting a gallon of gasoline to a frontline unit in Afghanistan, to one of our marine units there. And the two biggest imports that we bring in to Afghanistan our fuel and water. First, you've got to take that fuel across the Pacific. You've got to put it on a convoy. You have to take it up and over the Hindu Kush and then down to one of the Marines' forward operating bases. For every 24 convoys, we lose a Marine or a soldier guarding that convoy. But we also, at when these Marines and soldiers are guarding convoys, they're not doing what they were sent there to do, which is to fight, to engage, to rebuild. By changing the way that we produce and use energy in theater, we make ourselves better war fighters. We free up our Marines and our soldiers to do the jobs that they were sent there to do. There are other problems with being this dependent on fossil fuels. As Mentioned in the introduction, the president in June asked me to come up with a long-term restoration plan for the Gulf. The blowout of Deepwater Horizon shows some of the risk that we undertake when we continue to have the reliance that we do on fossil fuels. The environmental harm, which is widespread and unclear as to the duration, and the economic harm, which comes from people losing livelihoods. It comes from loss of tourism revenue. It comes from all sorts of sectors. But it is very real. And the coast still not completely recovered from Katrina and Rita, from Ike and Gustav, now sees itself under attack by the oil spewing forth in the Gulf. We have an opportunity with this well to begin to look at what we do and how we use energy and how we get it Um, Bill Riley is here who heads the President's Commission on how we can drill safely in deep water but I think longer term both for the people who have lost their livelihoods and it may be a while until we get them back. And as a country, we have to look at how we begin to shift the economy away from dependence on oil and gas and other fossil fuels and toward cleaner sources of energy. In the Navy, last fall, I put out five goals for the Navy, the most ambitious of which and one which I'm absolutely confident we can reach is that within ten years... The United States Navy will get one-half of all its energy needs, both afloat and ashore, from non-fossil fuel sources. The federal government uses 2% of all the fossil fuel energy America uses. The Department of Defense uses 90% of the energy the federal government uses. Navy and Marine Corps use more than a third of the energy used by the Department of Defense. So we use, in the Navy and Marine Corps, almost 1% of the energy that America uses. If we can switch, if we can begin to get this energy from different places and from different sources, then I think you can flip the line from Field of Dreams. If the Navy comes, they will build it. If If we provide the market, then I think you'll begin to see the infrastructure being built. You'll begin to see the price per kilowatt hour, or however you want to measure it, begin to come down. We've also got some other goals. One is we have a a fleet of 50,000 non-combat vehicles. They turn over about every five years. We're going to lower the fossil fuel usage in those by half within five years, just by changing what we buy, buying more electric vehicles, buying more flex fuel, buying more hybrid vehicles. And we're saving money almost from the instant we start doing this. We have a goal within 10 years that at least half of our bases Will be net zero in energy consumption we already have one here, China Lake, which is net zero today and puts energy back onto the grid we're looking at a broad range of things, everything from smart grid technology on our on our basis to geothermal hydrothermal solar wind and the thing that was mentioned in the intro we flew an F-18 Hornet on Camelina. It's a small little seed, member of the mustard family. It's not edible, and it can be used in rotation with other crops, so you don't have the problem that you do with corn ethanol, for example, or the first generation of biofuels. The plane flew at Mach 1.2, almost 1,000 miles an hour. The plane didn't notice the difference. We called it uh, the F-18 is the Hornet. So we named it the Green Hornet. And for people who laugh, I know how old you are, because the the comic book went out of existence a while ago, but the Green Hornet in the Navy shows the ability to fly using biofuels. We're beginning to test this summer on surface fleets. We launched our first hybrid ship, the USS Macon Island, last year. It was built in Pascagoula, Mississippi. It went to its new home port, or its home port of San Diego, around South America. On that first voyage, because of the hybrid drive, it saved almost $2 million in fuel cost. It has an electric drive at speeds under 10 knots, a normal gas turbine drive at speeds over 10 knots. Most surface ships do not go that fast much of the time, and you can save tremendous amounts of money doing it. We're looking at lots of other less um, less dramatic things to do. It's also saving us a lot of energy. Simply by using navigational tools, uh, we can save almost 10% of the energy. It used to be that we would tell our captain's, You're in San Diego, you need to be in Japan. Get there in two weeks and let them choose the route. Now, by use of navigational tools, by taking into account weather, by taking current and wind direction into account, we can shave 10% off our fuel cost. Same thing with hull coatings, with propeller guards, with things that just make sense over time. As we buy ships, we are also looking at the total ownership cost for that ship. Not just how much it costs to build and buy that ship, but over the 35 to 40 years it is going to be in the fleet. How much will it cost to operate? How big a crew does it have? How much will the energy use be? How much will the maintenance cost for that over time? Our newest ship is the Littoral Combat Ship. It's shallow draft, very fast, um, a good bit over forty knots, and it has a crew of forty. Now this is in comparison to my ship in the Navy, a cruiser, which was about twice as big as the Littoral Combat Ship, it had a thousand men on it. A DDG, a guided missile destroyer, today that is doing patrols for ballistic missile defense off Europe, in the Middle East, in the Western Pacific, has a crew of almost 300 people on it today. The LCS will have 40. It will also be a modular ship. You can take one weapon system off and put another one on. You change the mission without changing the hull design. We are very, very serious about the way we use and produce energy and reducing our dependence on fossil fuels. And the Navy has always led, always, in terms of switching sources of energy. In the 1850s, we went from sail to coal. In the early part of the 20th century, we went from coal to oil. In the 50s, we embraced nuclear power, and now all our carriers, all our submarines are nuclear. And every single time we did, every time, there was a group who said, you're trading one very certain means Of transportation for one that is unproven. And you're giving up this big infrastructure we've got. In fact, an official Navy panel in the late 1850s said that coal fired ships would never replace sail because it was too dangerous and too uncertain. When we went to oil, we gave up all those coaling stations set up at various ports around the world that supported things like the Great White Fleet going around the world in the early part of the 20th century. Nuclear, it was said, was too dangerous, and you couldn't make it small enough, particularly to go on a submarine. Today, our nuclear submarines are being equipped with life-of-the-hull reactors, which means they never have to be refueled in the 35 years that those ships will sail in, in our fleet. And this compares to civilian nuclear reactors, which get refueled about every two years. And they're small. And to date, there has never been a nuclear accident in the United States navy those are some of the things that we're doing i'm looking forward to our discussion in terms of of what can be done to lessen american dependence on fossil fuels we have a chance in the navy in the marine corps to lead this country to lead this country in new ways of producing energy, to lead this country in new ways of conserving energy, and it will make us better in terms of national security, in terms of national defense. It will also immeasurably aid this planet, which we call home. Thank you very much.
0: I think Thank so. Oh, good. Double mic. Our thanks to Ray Mavis, Secretary of the U.S. Navy, for his comments here today at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And welcome, Secretary Mavis. Uh, you mentioned Pakistan. Let's also talk about there's uh, fires in Russia. There's some landslides in China. Scientists say that these are the kinds of extreme weather events that models suggest will, increase, will occur with increased intensity and frequency in the future. Do you agree, and if so, what is the Navy doing to plan or anticipate for these kinds of extreme events?
1: Well, as I said in my remarks, we have a a task force, Task Force Climate Change, to look at what the impacts of, potential impacts of climate change will be. One that's very obvious is an ice-free Arctic uh, and what that means for both our surface and our subsurface Navy. And our patrolling responsibilities, if you have commerce going through that, uh, the Navy has got to be there. Uh, Secondly is if you have the rise in sea level. Uh, One of the reasons, not the only reason certainly, but one of the reasons that we do partnership stations around South America, around Africa, throughout the Pacific, uh, going into ports, dealing with um, countries that are in the early stages of development, is to build a relationship with those countries. Uh, There's a saying that you can surge people, you can surge equipment, but you cannot surge trust. You have to be there over and over again. And our model is that you go in, you stay for a set amount of time, you work on things like training their militaries, you work on things like engaging the population. Many times, those sailors and marines are the only Americans these folks will ever meet, and so they put a face on America. They build schools, they do dental, medical work, they do veterinary uh, work, and it's not only for today, but it's also against the day that because of climate change instability hits the region, so that we are a known quantity, so that we are a a helpful and trusted ally instead of some stranger coming in only when instability uh, occurs.
0: So for say an ice-free Arctic, does that mean the US will need more ships because they're gonna be covering more territory? Is that gonna change that dynamics with Arctic countries such as Russia, which I believe is already doing the Western, Northwestern passage?
1: Well, you, <clears throat> for one thing, there's all sorts of potential riches Underneath the the sea on the seabed and underneath the seabed in the Arctic, there will be, um, I'm sure, interesting discussions because various countries Canada, Russia, us claim various parts of the Arctic uh, because of of coastline and
0: oil and uh, gas along the Arctic.
1: Yeah. Well, it's not only oil and gas; it's other minerals and Mm. things like that. Um, The Navy and we have been pretty uh, specific about this, we need a fleet of at least 313 ships uh, to do the job that we have today. We have 290, but uh, we are on the path to reach 320 ships by the early 2020s. Uh, The five-year plan that uh, we put in last year, that the President's budget put in last year, we're going to build an average of 10 ships a year over the next five years, and over the next ten years, we will reach that goal. We will have more ships coming online than we do um, do being retired. So the, the short answer is yes, we, do need, we need a bigger fleet to do what we do today, but if you have things like an ice-free Arctic, you will need additional ships to make sure that you do that
0: correctly. And in Pakistan, there's a 1,000 Marines in Pakistan now. You mentioned uh, the ship. Do you think that the Navy and Marines will be called increasingly on humanitarian uh, missions if the scientists are correct that these kinds of extreme events uh, increase?
1: We are the nation's first responders to humanitarian disasters, and we have been called very frequently in the last few years, whether it's to uh, the tsunami in Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, Thailand, whether it is to um, <clears throat> flooding and uh, in, in Samoa, whether it is to Haiti, um, whether it is to Pakistan, where the Peleliu uh, amphibious ship uh, mm-hmm. with its marines, and our amphibious ready groups uh, the the three amphibious ships with their embarked marines are one of our most flexible forces that we have, they can go in to a Pakistan and with their helicopters, with their air assets, deliver aid. They can also go in and help rebuild. They have the largest medical facilities on, a, on an amphibious ship that we have outside a hospital ship. So they have impressive medical facilities on, on each one of these ships. And they can, they can do that mission while on a completely different combat-oriented mission. They can pivot instantly from, um, from anti-piracy, for example, to doing humanitarian relief. And it's that flexibility, it's that multi-use that makes a platform like that and a capacity like that so necessary for this country. And it, it has been today, and I'm confident it will be in the future.
0: An estimated 20 million people are affected by the flooding in Pakistan. I saw a movie recently, "Climate Refugees," which claimed there are 50 million. This was before Pakistan. 50 million people who are affected by, who are climate refugees. So when you look at the potential for disruption of uh, or creation of of failed states or trans-border migration of people as a destabilizing force, is that an issue in your scenario planning looking forward for risk uh, scenarios?
1: That was part of what I was talking about um, in terms of when, if, if places become fragile, or that because of climate change, or because of rising sea level, because of tsunamis, because of flooding, because of some natural disaster, it exacerbates a political issue or exacerbates economic issues and causes, particularly, countries in early development phases mm-hmm. to become less stable. And whenever you have a a crisis with stability, whenever you have a a country that moves from being stable to being unstable, then you do have a concern for not only the Navy and the Marine Corps, but you've got a concern for the world and and for America and for how we deal with that.
0: What are the spots that concern you most?
1: Well, obviously, uh, I think a lot about Afghanistan because of the 20,000 Marines and several thousand sailors that we have there. The first thing that I read every morning, are casualty reports coming out of there. Uh, I think we're on the right path now. I think we've got uh, a strategy that can move Afghanistan into a stable, self-sustaining state. Uh, But I think that more than worrying about a specific place, I worry about making sure that we have the the capability to deal with whatever comes over the horizon, that we are flexible enough, that we are nimble enough, that we, if required, are lethal enough to meet anything that, um, that may come our way. Because no matter how bright we are, And we have very bright people in the Pentagon working on possible scenarios uh, for all sorts of places in the world. Almost certainly, something's going to come that nobody's thought of. Because if you had looked ahead in 1989, if you'd looked ahead 20 years to today, before the wall went down, you would not have figured out what we were going to be faced today. If you'd have done it in 2001, before the attack on the World Trade Center, you would not have thought we are going to be in the situation we're in today. And so no matter how much transparency we think we have, no matter how much thought and effort we put into trying to figure out what the next crisis is going to be, we're almost certainly going to have something that comes along that we're not expecting, and for that reason, I, I'm concerned that we have the capabilities to meet whatever that next thing is, and I think that in the Navy and the Marine Corps in particular, we do.
0: I'm Greg Dalton, and my guest at Climate One today is Ray Mabus, Secretary of the U.S. Navy. Uh, let's talk about your ambitious energy plan, because I think this is something that's, that's quite striking by 2020 to have half of the energy consumption aflo- ashore and afloat uh, from renewable sources. How are you going to scale that fast? Are you going to use existing technology? Does that require new technology? Because just the sheer magnitude of that sounds quite daunting.
1: Well, for one thing, in terms of our fleet, um, we've got most of the ships we're going to have in 2020. So we know what we have to do to, to change that. And we know that we, we have to to use existing platforms. That It's not a question of inventing new platforms. we we know what we're going to have. We can do things like retrofit ships with hybrid drives, um, but mainly it's going to be changing the fuel that we that we put through those those ships. Now on shore it's a, it's a different matter because on shore you can look at a whole lot of different technologies. And we I think are are not only investing today in technologies that already exist. We're funding research on new technologies. We're working with the Department of Energy and the Department of Agriculture to to look at second, third generation biofuels, for example. Uh, biofuels from algae, biofuels from waste, biofuels from um, any sort of cellular substance, cellulosic ethanol that, that are going to be the second, and third generation of biofuels. <laughs> But on shore, we also have the ability to look at things like solar, and we're increasing our solar twenty fold over the next couple of years uh, we're looking at wind we 're looking at geothermal hydrothermal wave action. but we are funding some research that some of these things may be met by things that we that technologies that we we do not have today
0: but I- a lot of those things, putting in a wind turbine or, or, or some solar plants, require a big upfront capital investment. So are you putting up a bunch of capital and hoping that it will amortize over time?
1: Uh, I'll agree with the first half of that, uh, that statement. We're putting up capital, but we know it will amortize over a fairly quick uh, payback. for, and, and it will continue to pay back uh, dividends for us. I mean, if you put up, uh, if you look at China Lake, um, here in California, it's a geothermal energy source. It's going to be a geothermal energy source as far as we can see in the future. If you put up solar panels or wind turbines, if you do hydrothermal or wave action energy, once you make the upfront investment and the cost to sustain it, which is usually not that much, you've you begin to get savings pretty immediately, and you, those savings go on and on long after you've recovered the amount of, of your initial investment. We're also doing some, some less um, spectacular things just by putting in smart meters. Most of our bases today, or before we began putting in the smart meters, could not tell you where their power was going. Uh, one like base, most companies, yeah. most households. Yeah. Well, one one base commander showed me his electric bill, and fifteen percent of the energy coming onto the base was was itemized. The other eighty five percent, it said line loss, which mean was going somewhere, but nobody knew exactly where. Once we have retrofitted, done some of these smart meters, we'll know where wh- what the peak hours are. What uh, what buildings are using it? What aren't? What facilities we can we can change? Every building we're building in the Navy new today meets at least Silver LED standards, and from henceforth, uh, for our budget this year forward, we're going to meet Gold LED standards. So uh, we're beginning to make some of those investments, which will again repay many times over that initial
0: investment. Are you ahead or behind the other, other branches in this, uh, in this green effort? Oh, we're so far ahead. Yeah, I can predict. <laughs> what did I?
1: No, it, <laughs> I, I, in, in fairness to them. The Air Force is doing a lot with their bases, uh, particularly on solar. The Army is um, doing a lot of research in terms of things like transportation. And... Um, uh, all the services, all of DOD is looking very seriously at this. I, I do think the Navy, Marine Corps are ahead, but, uh, but I, I think the whole, the whole defense uh, at DOD, at the Department of Defense, is, is very serious about this.
0: How much is U.S. technology and how much is foreign technology? There's a lot of concern about Asian countries being ahead in, say, the, the battery race, those sorts of things. The U.S. is not leading or developing the technologies that even Detroit needs for cars. Well, one of the things that I think we
1: can do in the military is create some of those markets so that we don't lag in that technology, because it's crucial that we stay uh, at least even and preferably ahead in these technologies, in these new technologies, whether there's storage like ba- batteries, whether it's <clears throat> the way we produce energy, whether it's efficiency measures and how we use energy. if if we lag in that, it, it has profound national security implications, but it also has profound economic implications in terms of jobs, in terms of how our economy works, and, oh, by the way, it also has big climate implications.
0: So right now you're saying that you're finding what you need from U.S. suppliers? Yes. Yes. I'd like to read a quote from Kevin Parker, who's global head of Deutsche Asset Management, which manages $700 billion in capital, including $7 billion devoted to climate change products. This is via Reuters. Uh, The U.S. is asleep at the wheel on climate change, asleep at the wheel on job growth, asleep at the wheel on this industrial revolution taking place in the energy industry. He says Deutsche Bank will put capital in places with more steady, certain, and transparent policies, such as Italy, Spain, and China. Now there's global capital saying it's going to go somewhere else because the U.S. doesn't have its policy act together and doesn't have the opportunities.
1: Well, I disagree with him on almost all of that. Um, number one, this administration, this president has been very clear on the policy that he is pursuing and that he thinks that the United States should pursue in terms of of creating this new economy of creating green jobs, of beginning the transformation away from from fossil fuels. Uh, Secondly, I'll make a big argument that the United States has, uh, in terms of rule of law, in terms of transparency, in terms of certainty, um, as good a system as there is in the world in terms of investing your funds. But it does go to show, goes to show that we cannot... Um, we cannot stop or even be hesitant about the rate of change that's going to have to occur. A lot of times when technology changes, the U.S. military has has led the way. Uh, you only have to look at things like GPS or flat screen TVs. Uh, those were military applications long before they were um, in, in the civilian world. I think you'll see the same thing in terms of energy, because right now there there are two hurdles to alternate energy. One is cost uh, of that energy, and two is the infrastructure for it. If the military creates a market for both of those, the cost will inevitably come down. The infrastructure will begin to be developed first around military bases, but then it's easily scalable uh, into the first the surrounding areas and then the rest of the country.
0: Uh, other people cite jet propulsion as well as uh, digital electronics, semiconductors, areas where the military bought down the price of electronics that then were commercialized. Uh, but I think the person from Deutsche Bank was also talking about policy, and the U.S. has not have an integrated policy on climate change and clean energy as some European countries have, as, as China. I would agree with you on transparency and governance, but China is going full bore on clean energy in a way the U.S. has not because the Congress has still not come together around an energy policy. No, and Does that affect what you're doing? Well,
1: number one, this administration does have a coherent energy policy, and I will, I will say that again, that um, while there has not been a an umbrella energy bill, but the bill that came out of the House and Went to the Senate mainly dealt with cap and trade mm-hmm. uh, instead of uh, a a broader base thing that I think you and the head of Deutsche Bank were talking about mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how it affects uh, the Navy or the Marine Corps. We can do these things within the existing authorities that we have. We can do these things simply because uh, it under under our Statutory authorities under our responsibilities is to to be the best uh, war fighters that we can be and this change in power and the sources of power and the uses of power or energy uh, makes us better war fighters it and it in the long run will um, will save us we can we can Take money that we're today using for energy and put it in Secretary Gates's words, move it from tail to tooth, move it into more weapon systems, move it into different sorts of things that help the, the people right at the end of the spear.
0: Ray Mavis is Secretary of the U.S. Navy, and he's our guest today at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to invite you up to the microphone if you'd like to uh, ask uh, a question, and I will just ask one more question, which is... Uh, in your role as a lead of the Gulf restoration, what can you tell us about what's going to happen there and how quickly will the people affected there, you know, what's your, any insight you can give us to your recommendations of what the president of the U.S. should do in the Gulf to get it back?
1: In, in terms of the environment, there's a lot of research that's already been done. There are projects that have, have all the permits, that have all the environmental impact statements already done, that have all the engineering already done that have simply been waiting for funding. And I think that some of those we can advance and begin to do relatively quickly. But I also think we've got to look long-term in, um, in terms of coastal environmental restoration and also in terms of economic restoration and beginning to think about how we make that transition, particularly on the coast, to a different kind of energy
0: economy. But do you think drilling should continue until we figure that out?
1: Well, yes, I do. I mean, I think that uh, Bill Riley and his commission, uh, in terms of putting in safeguards for that energy, for that deep water drilling, uh, that and, and I think this administration has shown that it believes drilling should continue. Uh, on April 18th, uh, the day the Green Hornet flew, uh, and the day that the, the well blew out, uh, in a, the, the president announced uh, that this administration would support opening more areas for uh, deep water outer continental shelf drilling. And I think that given the correct uh, safeguards and to make sure that we're doing whatever is necessary in terms of making sure that a deep water horizon is far less likely to occur in beginning to do some research not only on drilling but on what happens if there is a mistake like this. I mean, we we were using 50s, 60s, 70s technology to try to stem this. And the, while the drilling research right. has gone on, the things around it has not. But I've got a lot of faith in this commission uh, that they're going to come back with uh, with some very strong recommendations
0: there. Okay. Uh, yes, sir. For a brief question, please.
1: Um, Secretary, thank you very much for your remarks. Uh, my name is Peter Gisela. Um, for 30 years, I've been interested in a youth energy corps with the spirit of the Marine Corps as a way to alleviate these concerns about the Persian Gulf and climate change. Unfortunately, environmentalists like Mr. Dalton don't agree with this approach, and I was wondering, the only letter I've gotten from the Pentagon was on the behalf of President Reagan asking the Director of Manpower Services your to your question, respond. please? I, I would like to share this information with the policymakers that you um, oversee and hopefully can get some feedback, written feedback from them. I would love to get that. And we've got some folks in the audience that, if you'll get it to, we'll give you some feedback.
0: Thank you. Do you have any specific views on the liability cap that has been a point of contention uh, for res- drill- for oil companies, what the li- you're former governor of Gulf State, so what should the liability cap be for oil companies drilling in the Gulf?
1: Well, obviously, the cap that was placed on it, which was seventy million dollars, I think, um, did not anticipate anything remotely like this incident. This was by far the biggest, most widespread that we 've ever seen, and again, obviously it was not contemplated now. BP has said uh, that it's not going to be uh, held to that liability cap. In fact, they've already, uh, through the president, pledged $20 billion into an escrow fund to go against lost wages, lost income, lost profits uh, from, from individuals and businesses. So I do think that a, another look needs to be taken uh, at, at, at things that were put into place Particularly right after Exxon Valdez, with the notion that that was the biggest spill we could we could imagine, uh, but 20 years have passed, and also uh, this shows that there are much larger catastrophes that are possible. And so I think that um, the legal structure, as is the case uh, a lot of times, needs to be updated to to take take into account realities uh, as they exist today.
0: So in the billions, fair to say it would be in the billions a cap?
1: I'm, I'm not sure there needs to be a cap. <clears throat> uh, that uh, I mean, BP has said that uh, that, that $20 billion. Uh, the president said and they said that that is not a, a ceiling, that um, if more <clears throat> money is required, more money will be, will be forthcoming. And, and you're, you're only talking, too, about a very narrow thing here. It's um, legal liability. I mean, there's also, um, there are also legal mechanisms for cleanup work. There's uh, restoration work under the National Resources Damages Assessment Act, or NERDA, that, um, that will be coming into play. There are fines under the Clean Water Act that can range from, I think, a low of $1,100 a barrel to a high of $4,300 a barrel or any oil that, that escapes. So you're talking about one specific part of it, but there are other mechanisms that, uh, that don't have a similar
0: cap. But with no cap, wouldn't the industry say that that's too expensive, that their cost of doing business and their insurance would, would go up, that that would be hurtful to uh, energy exploration?
1: Well, I'm not sure that um, in this situation, for example, BP sees a cap. Because they certainly have in their public statements have not indicated that there's that that they're viewing anything as a cap that they're that they're committed um, through this twenty billion dollar escrow fund um, and things like that to making sure that all restoration needs to be done, making sure that um, in terms of making people whole for lost income for lost wages. For economic harm is taken care of, regardless of, of what that is. And I mean, the president made that very clear when uh,
0: when that escrow account was
1: was we've, announced.
0: We've also heard reports of people saying that yes, BP says that they'll pay all claims, but a lot of people have expressed uh, dissatisfaction with how long and how difficult it actually gets to get those claims processed to get to the shrimp fishermen and the, the resort people on the Gulf Coast, your former constituents.
1: Well. There are two processes. One is one BP has got set up now. The other one is this escrow account that Ken Feinberg is going to be running, which is independent. It's not run by either BP or the government. Uh, Mr. Feinberg is an independent agent. And it is imperative that that process get up and running as quickly as possible so you can speed up some of those payments. Because some of these folks, fishermen and people that own hotels or restaurants, uh, sometimes for generations both in both industries, both tourism and fishing. Um, they've been hit by these hurricanes. Uh, Katrina, uh, just the devastation is unimaginable uh, from Katrina. the uh, And the ones that followed, the ones that did not get as much publicity, but also damage. They had made it through that and... And then the recession hit, and so you've got a drop in tourism, a drop in uh, things like house rentals or purchases. They were beginning to climb out of that, and then here comes the oil spill. Um, And a lot of places, I mean, I was in Panama City with the president uh, in mid-August, which the water is great. The beaches are great. But the perception is that there's a real problem. And so people are staying away. And the president and his family went down. The president and his youngest daughter went swimming. Um, and there was absolutely no, no hint of oil. And there was no problem with doing that. But that's not the view that, that you get if you just watch the media, listen. Uh, to To the reports going on, and some of these folks aren't going to make it through one more season. They make seventy five, eighty percent of their money from two months. Yeah. Well, Memorial Day to Labor Day. Yeah, three months. Yeah. And if if this process isn't speedy enough and isn't adequate, they may not be there for um, uh, Memorial Day next year. And that's why it is crucial that we get that going. And then hopefully we can start doing some more long-term things um, to rebuild the environment to the way it was um, before the spill and to help the economy.
0: Secretary Ray Mavis is Secretary of the U.S. Navy, and he's our guest here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, I'd like to talk about, you mentioned R&D, and uh, there's one piece of research that I found fascinating, and that is a my, potential for a microbial fuel cell, which I was described by someone as, as, a, as a battery that runs on mud. So I'm interested in, in some of the breakthrough technologies that you might be working on. You think that really could be a game changer for the Navy and perhaps for commercial technology.
1: Well, you're, you're talking to an English major here. So <laughs> oh. in, in terms of the technical aspects of some of these things, We've got some very bright people working on it. Um, Department of Naval Research funds pure science, and they've won a lot of Nobel Prizes just looking at, at pure things in science that will then eventually sometimes make its way into commercial applications or into military applications. And you never know what those things are going to be. But I've got a lot of confidence in things like Department of Naval Research, things like DARPA, um, that, that do cutting-edge technology, cutting-edge research, that, um, that are beginning and, and are focusing on, on these sorts of things. I mean, one of the most limiting factors, you've mentioned it twice now, are batteries. You can, you can produce all the power you want to if you can't store it. You know, the lights in this room right now, were produced a few seconds ago. They they were that electricity wasn't stored. It mm-hmm. it's produced when the demand is there. And looking at the storage possibilities and batteries and other technologies to store things. I know you mentioned Spain. They're looking at storing energy in molten salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you lo- Other companies and countries are looking at storing it in other ways in massive on a massive scale. And we've got to overcome that storage capacity uh, issue. Uh, You know, the the Navy has done a remarkable job on miniaturizing nuclear power. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of work is being done, not only in the military, but also around the country in terms of potential future uses of much smaller-scale nuclear things.
0: Do you think that... Do you believe in peak oil, that, that oil prices will be more expensive in the future that might drive this transition to non-fossil sources?
1: Well, I think what I believe in is that uh, oil prices are almost always going to be volatile, that um, whether you've reached peak oil or not, you're going to have you know, supply shocks and price shocks with, with oil. So much of it is produced in um, volatile places on Earth that are <coughs> susceptible to supply interruptions that uh, are susceptible to, uh, to price shocks that it can mm-hmm. reverberate through the global economy. And um, so regardless of whether we're at peak oil or not, I think it's important that we begin to move toward other sources of fuel that are more stable in terms of pricing, more stable in terms of supply, and more controllable in terms of national defense. Uh,
0: a lot of people make that argument about sort of, uh, fossil fuels coming from unstable or less friendly places. Um, Afghanistan, which you mentioned, was recently referred to as the Saudi Arabia of lithium because there was this huge discovery of, of lithium there, per, potentially a trillion dollars of mineral deposits of lithium and other resources. General Petraeus called it a, of stunning potential. So is it possible that we go from... An, Obviously, lithium is the main ingredient in batteries we've been talking about. Is it possible that we go from needing oil from Saudi Arabia from being dependent on lithium from Afghanistan?
1: Well, I think it also proves the point that we've got to look at a whole lot of ways to produce energy, that we're not dependent, regardless of what the material is, that we are much more self-sufficient in terms of our energy production. I mean, it doesn't... I won't use lithium, but it doesn't make any sense to trade dependence on foreign oil for dependence on foreign solar technology, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Equally susceptible to um, to problems in supply. If you, uh, we we have to develop that economy here, not only for for those security reasons that I talked about, but also for the jobs and for transforming the American economy toward a, a greener economy, which is. The future in in
0: every way that
1: you can look at it.
0: Oil is is, is volatile. Food is also uh, commodities. We we've seen wheat, wheat prices surge recently because of the Russian fires, uh, which some client climatists would say we can expect more of those kinds of things in the in the future. So when you look at volatility, is food on your radar at all in terms of a risk? for uh, destabilizing states?
1: Well, again, because so many people live so close to the ocean, so close to um, in the littoral zones, um, you have to look at at climate change, whether it's rising sea levels, whether it's more natural disasters, um, as as being potential destabilizing sources. And again, I don't think it's... Uh, I don't think it's as much looking at specific ways countries can be destabilized as it is preparing for the eventuality that it could happen and responding adequately to it.
0: Come to the end of our time here, I'd like to thank Secretary Ray Mabus, Secretary of the U.S. Navy, for his comments here at Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming.